0: Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined today by my co host, Eric Newman.
1: Hello, 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 Kate.
0: <laughs> Hi, Eric. Nice to hear your voice. And today we're listening to a conversation we had with DeVarian L. Baldwin about his book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. And Eric, I have to say, you're probably more familiar with this than me, but I didn't realize the extent of how villainous universities can be. And I I was a little, I felt very naive after reading this book and speaking with DeVarian.
1: Yeah, it's a thing that I think when you work closely inside the university system, you get more of a sense of, but what I find so valuable about DeVarian's book is that it's a conversation that I think more people need to be having both inside of and outside of academia. Primarily the takeaway being that universities are a business and the reason that you didn't recognize that before as much is precisely because of this veneer of a pure social good that the university kind of is allowed to wear because of how we think of universities. And also this comes from our own experience, most of us in undergrad, with the university as a place of wonderful learning, you know, opening minds, wonderful professors, idyllic campuses. So, you know, DeVarian, I think, quite rightly shows us a really different side of the university.
0: Shockingly to me, although of course over the last years I've seen friends who are adjuncts constantly complaining about their lot, and uh, I've been following strikes you know across the country of adjuncts. I know about you know NYU expanding. That's something we talk about a bit in, in the show, but it it does seem it's it's everywhere.
1: Um, totally, and that it's mostly about like the adjuncts is a kind of it bleeds it leads story in most newspapers. It's finally getting, like, lots of coverage. But what Daveri, again, turns us to is the real estate mogulry, so to speak, of the university and how that impacts the largely non-white populations around the campuses of universities. That's why I was so glad that we had this conversation with DeVarian. and I think that it will inspire, I hope that it will inspire a lot of similar conversations and questions in our listeners.
0: I agree, well, so let's start by listening to our conversation with DeVarian
1: right now. Let's do it.
0: happy to be speaking with the writer and historian Devarian L. Baldwin today. Deverian is the Paul E. Rayther Distinguished Professor of American Studies and founding director of the Smart Cities Lab at Trinity College. He's the author of Chicago's New Negroes, Modernity, the Great Migration, and Black Urban Life, and co-editor of the essay collection Escape from New York, the New Negro Renaissance Beyond Harlem. His newest book, which we'll be discussing today, is In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, An exploration of the often uneasy relationship between universities and the cities they inhabit. The book draws on numerous examples such as Yale, Columbia, NYU, University of Chicago, and even Trinity College to show the impact schools have on their surrounding neighborhoods. As often as not, these universities are drivers of inequality, displacement, and gentrification. In an era of post-industrialization universities, have replaced factories to regularly become the largest employers of their cities with tax-exempt status to boot, giving them an undue amount of power while their focus remains on self-enrichment. Welcome to the show, DeVarian.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here.
1: So, DeVarian, I want to start out with just an open question about how you became interested in this topic, you know, and specifically how you identified, I guess, what we would call the term that you use is universities, to combine university and cities, and how you came to that kind of analytic.
2: Thanks. So this really was a work of being, quote unquote, in the field and history kind of just surrounding me in a way. I, for most of my career, I even though I was trained in American studies, which is an interdisciplinary field that engages in both historical and contemporary work, most of my early work, as, as was read by Kate a minute ago, was been primarily historical and archival. And so in 2003, I was actually in the archives at the University of Chicago's Regenstein Library. And it was a a brisk December day and I walked out of the archives and history basically hit me in the face when I heard chants and protests. This is in the beginning of the book, I talk about this, but I heard chants and protests that led me to the administration building to find that residents of the historic Brownsville neighborhood to the north of the campus were protesting because of the decisions on the part of the University of Chicago to purchase and relocate the famed checkerboard blues lounge from Bronzeville to the campus neighborhood of Hyde Park in the university's commercial corridor, Harper Court. And residents were charging cultural theft and charging USC, look at your history. And so in that moment, this aha moment came and I started delving deeper into the story and I found that this acquisition and repurposing of a lounge to anchor kind of commercial development and to serve as a magnet for students, researchers and their families to the area as being, you know, kind of urban and alive was just a window into the larger impact and influence of higher education on the neighborhoods where they sit and their cities more broadly. And so as I delved into the University of Chicago, I realized they've had this controlling hand over the South Side since their 1892 kind of second founding. And then when I began to tell the story to other people, they said, oh, you got to talk about NYU and Columbia. Oh, what about Emory? What about St. Louis University and Washington University in St. Louis? Oh, what about Cleveland State? What about the University of Miami? What about USC for the LA folks out there? What about, you know, what about Arizona State University who just built a downtown campus from their Tempe College Town campus to the downtown Phoenix? So the story just kind of steamrolled. And I talked to people, they're like, you know, this is something we've all lived with, especially because I, I live in a community of academics. I've been academic. They're so, you know, that's been my life for the last, you know, 35 years. They're saying, yeah, we live with this and we joke about this and we, and we make jokes about this. But no one stepped back to say that this is actually a political economic impulse and orientation to reorganizing and structuring cities. And because I've been primarily, I've been in Urban's my whole life, this became a window into thinking about what has happened in deindustrialized America, kind of the underside of Richard Florida's vaunted creative class celebration. That cities can make a comeback if they created an infrastructure, a landscape of waterfronts and coffee shops and press juice bars to bring people back into the cities. They will bring their talents and skills and biotech and pharmacy and big pharma and design. They will revitalize former Rust Belt cities. They will, you know, after the fall of factories, the creative city will be the story. And so for me, I said, wait a minute, the world he's describing is actually a campus. And then to delve into more of his work, I realized that he talks about the campus as a central fulcrum, for bringing back, for setting the table for these creative types. And so I wanted to tell the other side, those who I say live in the shadows of these ivory towers. And so that's kind of what was the driving factor here.
0: It's interesting the way that the story that we all know about cities at this point, that there's, you know, urbanization, there's deindustrialization, then there's white flight, then there's in the last 20 years, people have come back into cities and wanted to live in cities again. And so I wonder if you could just place the... College campus in that history. You know, you write that originally a lot of these campuses were on the edge of a city. And then, you know, the sprawl happened until now they're actually more in a center or Mm -hmm. some kind of center. So they're within the city now. Maybe they weren't when they were first built, but just relate the way the college campus has functioned, you know, over time in these cities.
2: So when we think about Harvard's being situated in Cambridge, not Boston. We think about the University of Chicago being in Hyde Park. We think about Columbia being in Harlem. So in the early to mid 20th century, these were peripheral neighborhoods. In some cases, they were rural areas (laughs) in the cities. And then as cities grew during the period of urbanization between the 1930s and the 1960s, 50s, actually. They were incorporated as central urban loci. Within their cities, so they weren't even on the periphery; they were at the center of their cities by that time. As urbanization grew through, you know, factories and urbanization and, and economic development in cities, but by the time we get to the 50s and 60s, we are beginning to see the beginnings of what we call white flight, which is actually capital flight and white people chasing capital. You know, so like white flight is a great, great alliterative term, but it's really actually just deceptive in what it describes. But the point that I want to make here is that so at the same time that we talk about white flight, other folks talked about cities being immersed in a period of urban crisis. Because this is the second wave of the Great Migration, the greater migration, when actually most African-Americans move to places like L.A. And it's also the period when you have a significant influx of Latinx residents into cities. And there's a great drive of Caribbean and Caribbean-Americans coming into the cities from Jamaica, Trinidad, Puerto Rico, Cuba, etc. So what some people see as opportunity, those communities, those who are already there, like the universities, see urban crisis. Because at the same time, these communities are coming in. Economic opportunity and factories and infrastructure are going to the newly developed and federally subsidized suburbs. And so at this point, universities are some of the only entities that are too big to move. And so they lobby urban universities like NYU, starting with U Chicago. They lead this. Like they lobby these endeavors with university-based urban development. They get together about 14 urban universities, which includes UC Berkeley, NYU, and other schools, and say, that as the federal government is doling out urban renewal money and demolishing whole blocks of black and brown communities, can we get in on this game to save ourselves? So they offer or push for an amendment to the Housing Act, the Federal Housing Act of 1949, shorthanded as the 112 credits program. I don't want to walk out on you all guys, but the point here is that what it offered is that for every dollar that the city created or invested in its urban renewal project, the federal government offered $2 for any project that was tied to an higher education institution. So what ultimately happened is that you have these institutes of higher education that become the drivers of urban renewal. And so in this process, they began to demolish whole blocks of black and brown neighborhoods that surround their campuses. Neighbors that they saw as a threat to their economic development and viability, as a way to secure their economic sustainability. And they demolish these whole blocks. They fill, and these are actually, in many cases, these are middle class. So even from an economic standpoint, these aren't even slums. But their racial composition make them a threat. And so they fill these now empty blocks with either campus buildings or keep them vacant as an institutional and physical buffer between the growing populations of Black and brown folk in cities, and the so-called viability and safety of keeping white students, white faculty, and their families coming back to these universities. So by the time we get to the 70s and the 80s, the period of the rise of what we call neoliberalism, most of these schools are prosperous islands amidst seeds of poverty. And then by the time we get to the 90s, there becomes this kind of back-to-the-city movement, the children of Suburban sprawl begin to look differently at cities. They want to come back because shorter commutes. They want to take advantage of the waterfronts, the amenities of cities, museums, concert halls, et cetera. But a big part of that draw is municipal leaders are trying to figure out ways to draw people back in. So they're underwriting. They're offering public subsidies to convert. You know, this is all about the period of law of conversion. So turning former warehouses into living spaces, that's all publicly funded. This is also about underwriting tech, and design startup companies in those same warehouses. And this is also about draconian policing processes like Rudolph Giuliani's quality of life campaign. I lived in New York in the 90s. So this is all about bringing people back in through the draconian policing practices to clear ground. This also was happening is that mental health facilities were being cleared out in major cities and turned and converted into high-end housing. So all this is going on is bringing people back into the city. And the way they're imagining a city In many regards, fully wired, waterfront, connectivity, density, coffee shops, museums is a campus. That's their idea of a campus. But campuses like you, Chicago, got rid of all that commercial development as the way to keeping out racial and economic mixing. So the very way in which these so-called returnees, these new settlers, are envisioning the city as a campus, schools aren't even prepared to benefit from that. So in this critical period, you begin to see a convergence between municipal leaders trying to draw on this tax base so people come back into the city. And on the other side, campuses saying, we need to retrofit ourselves to take advantage of these returnees. And also because we're receiving less money from the state for basic infrastructural needs, because all schools, public and private, get public money. So they are getting less of that. So you have a moment of interest convergence between the needs of municipal leaders to take advantage of a space that can attract this tax base and campuses looking for other ways to generate revenue. And so this is why I say gives rise to what I call the universe city.
1: Yeah. So, DeVarian, I think that's exactly where I wanted to go with it, because there is this, as you said, this interest convergence. And I think that that, if you can help, like, etch out the later history, because I think what a lot of us experience is, you know, on the one hand, you're saying all of us, you know, I have a PhD, you're faculty, you know, you work in that world and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, UC stands for under construction. And what that really means is not just that they're always you know revitalizing and i'm using scare quotes here the campus itself but it's constantly about the acquisition of new real estate i mean the the thing that you're pointing to and nyu is definitely guilty of this and that was a joke back when i was there in the early 2000s you know that the campus increasingly becomes the city and so what i want to ask you about is twofold one it seems that there's been a dramatic spike in this type of activity in, let's say, the last 20 years. I'm not saying it doesn't exist before then, but the last 20 years, it's been dramatic. And Mm -hmm. part of that converges with the dramatic drop in public funding for certainly public education, but for education just to court, you know, in general. Mm -hmm. But then you also have this interesting, and I love how you put pressure on this, the university oftentimes insulates itself from criticism, specifically this kind of criticism about, kind of you'd say, economic racial antagonism, right? So pushing people out, like capturing effectively neighborhoods because it purports to be, and I still believe in the university in certain guises. Oh, definitely. Is, It is a public good. It does good things. It raises consciousness about these things. And yet, as you're pointing out, it is trying to have its cake and eat it too in that way. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about kind of what is happening in the last 20 years that seems to really be everything you're documenting
2: historically, but on steroids? Yeah, so thank you for that question. So a lot of this begins, and I'll try to be brief as I can, but just the point that I want to make is a lot of this is about political economy. And with the fall of factories and the rise of information, knowledge, biotech, et cetera, the university becomes a a central fulcrum in managing and facilitating that economy. So what we mean by knowledge economy is basically the use of academic research to produce a range of lucrative, products and services in areas from biotech and pharmacy to software products and even military defense weaponry. So the research and development that goes on a campus is powering today's economy. So think about the vaccines, Moderna, Pfizer, et cetera. A lot of that R&D is done on campuses or campus adjacent laboratories. Okay. Well,
1: Just to point out very quickly, DeVarian, what you're pointing to as well is that the campus is a business. The right. university is a business. So I just wanted to lay that out clearly and, for and, and our, our listeners. And just to continue your
2: metaphor, your point: the laboratories and the building spaces on campuses are the shop floor of today's yes. yes. today's economy. These are the new fact. The knowledge. You know, we could say knowledge factories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so the point that I want to make is that so you have this knowledge economy, but it's always been there. But what really unlocks it is the 1980 policy of the Buy dole Act, B-A-Y-H And again, like that housing policy in the 1940s and 50s, this was put together by a group of higher education lobbyists saying that, okay, for so long, almost all research and development on college campuses is done with federal money, i.e. free. But because it was done with federal money, it's produced federal money, it was always placed in public domain. The logic was that, well, if you're using public money to do it, then you can't privatize the research that's done. But with this bayh Act 1980, what happens is these universities get together and say, well, actually, we want to do that. <laughs> and so this is precisely what the bayh Act opens the door for, is saying that even though you have federal free money producing the research and development, now we want to be able to turn that into intellectual property. Sell it on the private market universities and then receive millions of dollars back in royalties for that free work, for that free research and development in terms of how it's funded and free not to you and I citizens free to the university because we pay for that. Okay, so just to be clear about that (laughs) and the end products don't come back to us at below market rates, we pay the market rates. Ask your insurance companies, right? So the point that I want to make in this is that this becomes the new mechanism for facilitating capital and labor. And so then these very buildings that we're talking about that at one time were just internal to the campus, you need room because now all of a sudden you have this profit-making motive or opportunity to build out laboratories and workshops, but also housing for researchers and their families To turn these campuses into knowledge factories, especially as the percentage of the state expenditure on colleges is shrinking. So just to be clear, at one point, some states paid for up to 60 or 70 percent of a school's basic infrastructure. Now it's down to 20 percent, even for some state schools. So with this new knowledge economy and the unleashing of this capital force through the Buy dole Act, a series of new arrangements get put on steroids, as you mentioned, or are exacerbated. And so what previously were just classrooms and laboratories are now factories, and their power gets extremely hyped up because, according to the tax code, colleges and universities are nonprofits. So they are, by the code 501c3s, they are nonprofits. And because they're nonprofits, and they're not the only nonprofits, but because they are central nonprofits in cities, their property holdings are tax-exempt. So I know you're probably already getting to where I'm trying to go. So (laughs) spaces (laughs) that are property tax exempt become the ground upon which universities begin to build their wealth based on partnerships with private entities like Google, Bombardier, Pfizer, Moderna, Levitra, Gatorade, the list goes on and on. Right. So then in this phenomenon, you have these universities in the middle, most times of struggling black and brown cities like New Haven, like the South Side, like North St. Louis, like South, what y'all now calling South L.A. now is that was called being called now it has been rebranded as South Los Angeles, not South Central. So this is where these urban, these big and small urban or Frog Hollow in, in Hartford. This is where these. So the very. Capacity. So, this creates what I call a public good paradox, is what I'm getting to. This is what creates a public good paradox because it's precisely the presumption that these institutions are public goods, as identified by their tax exemption in the property tax code, that precisely performs or allows these schools for profit interest to be covered in an economic and political shelter. Yeah. Right. And And an ideological one.
1: I mean, that's the other angle here is that it's like the social capital of the university as a public good, right? Mm -hmm. As a place where we go to learn things, where we have such a thing as a liberal education and the consciousness raising and you know class
2: mobility that's supposed to go with that. That's another Mm -hmm. part of this insulation. That's right. And so what happens, and I was just a few weeks ago, I was at a consciousness raising activist event in New Haven because it's such a big entity in Yale in the middle of a pretty small city, the disparities are just so stark and glaring. So Yale University actually does contribute because they no schools pay, are required to pay property taxes. They contribute a pilot. They contribute the largest pilot in the country of $13 million, which is significant, it's important. But that's compared to their $36 billion endowment. And the endowment is not the only place where they make money because they also partner with private pharmaceutical companies and biotech to produce other undocumented revenues. So the thirty billion is just the endowment. And so the point being is that because the expanded these expanded laboratories and workstations and living spaces, what are being called innovation districts, I'm sure you heard that phrase before, or knowledge communities that brings together retail, real estate laboratories, altogether in these faux urban communities, as these expand out into our cities, these are all covered under the public good framework of educational purposes. And so the very property tax money that would go to paying for things like public schools, road maintenance, snow and trash removal. Think about Texas a couple of months ago, the electrical grid, These very infrastructural needs don't get met by some of the biggest entities in the cities, the universities and colleges. And at the same time, to add insult to injury, the university and college affiliates benefit from these public facilities, but they don't pay into it.
0: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with DeVarian L. Baldwin about his new book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities are Plundering Our Cities. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're lucky to have Susan Bernofsky on the line today. Susan Bernofsky is a well-regarded German translator and the author most recently of Clairvoyant of the Small, The Life of Robert Walser. And she's here to give us a book recommendation.
3: Hi, thanks so much for having me back to recommend a book that I just read recently. And I wanted to recommend Kate Zambrino's book to write as if already dead. Now, Kate Zambrino was certainly already on my my radar as a Walser-obsessed person because she's also a Walser-obsessed person as anyone who's read her novel Drifts will know. So I was really curious um, to see what she was going to do, writing about Hervé Guibert, who was this, this writer who knew Foucault and who was in the sort of French Parisian intellectual scene and also wound up contracting and eventually dying of AIDS and writing about illness and, you know, sort of writing in this really just outrageous way about the illness because he wrote about having AIDS at a time in a context where it was so much a taboo and he outed other people as well as himself as having AIDS. And Kate Zambrino writes about this so fascinatingly because she's woven his story into this book that really is examining friendship and writing and the way you have community as a writer. A lot of this book is talking about her friendship with a anonymous other writer who's contacted her anonymously and they have all these conversations about art and at the same time she's writing about pregnancy and what it means to be a writer and have a body and all these things just get interwoven in this really fascinating and complex and really moving way i was just really deeply moved by this book as a meditation on all these things writing and friendship and death and life and birth so I highly re- recommend this book. It's it's lovely and it's just out from Columbia University Press to write As If Already Dead by Kate Zambrino. Well, that is a great recommendation.
0: And I have to say, I agree with you because we had Kate on the show and- oh, Wonderful. <laughs> love talking with her and I also love the book. I wonder what it was like for you to read this book, having yourself just written a very different kind of biography.
3: Yeah, well, I was particularly interested in this because- I'm still, even though, you know, my book is now out, I'm still like wrestling in my head with like, what right does anyone have to write about another person? And she's writing about another person who also took liberties writing about another person and is, you know, talking about another person who wishes not to be known and writing and responsibility and what you reveal and what you have the right to reveal. I thought her book is not a biography, but it contains a lot of biographical material. And you see the selection process she went through to decide what, I mean, she even talks about it. So, you know, what is she revealing? Also, what does she reveal about herself in writing about this other person? So all this was very much on my mind. So I was eager to read this book and I was definitely not disappointed. <laughs>
0: Give us the title of the book one more time and the author, if you don't mind.
3: Kate Zambrino, to write as if already dead. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you, Kate. This has been fun. That was Susan Bernofsky. Her
0: new book is Clairvoyant of the Small, The Life of Robert Falsar. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with DeVarian L. Baldwin, author of in the shadow of the ivory tower. Something that I, so obvious in the book, especially around a lot of conversations we're having about adjunct teaching, right, is also that there's this biofeedback of, you know, that the, the university in the city, maybe, you know, less in a small college town, but within the city has now become this anchor institution that is like hiking up rents and then, In the past with factory towns, at least there was, you know, subsidized housing for people to live in. But there's such exploitative labor practices and that people can't even afford to live close to the university that's paying them a substandard wage, whether they're, you know, working on the ground staff, whether they're a graduate student. So I I wondered also if you could talk a little bit about universities as sites of exploitative labor and and how that fits into, you know, their place within the city as well because they hike up rents.
2: So if the key word around land acquisition, in terms of the ways in which universities use language to engage in wealth extraction, if the key word there is educational purposes based on the tax code, when it comes to labor, particularly graduate labor and adjunctification, the the key word is apprenticeship, especially for graduate students. So they're not even understood as workers. They're understood as just, I guess, uh, uh, professionals in training. But to get to your point more directly, as higher education expands further out into communities, they raise land value. So older families, elders, aunties, and grandmamas who live in these neighborhoods who are, who are able to spend 30, 40 plus years buying a home, and but now they're on a fixed income. Well, when, when the university expands to their neighborhoods, they can't afford the property tax hikes because they're on a fixed income because the university is nearby. So they end up having to either, you know, figure out ways to bring in borders or move. At the same time, rent prices go up. So even if you're being, if you if you are an adjunct or a graduate student on a below uh, living wage salary or not even salary, but wages, it's compounded by the fact that your rental prices or your housing prices are going up because of your affiliation or your association or your relationship to a university. But even beyond that, let's talk about families that live in these neighborhoods in the shadows. So as for example, in South LA, as USC Village, opened up a couple of years ago and the USC began to expand in that area, we found a significant number of housing pressures in the ways I've just outlined, but also as small landholders or big time speculators are trying to capture the student and faculty market, we are finding that what might have been a single family home is being cut up and retrofitted into multifamily dwellings at higher rates because they know that more wealthy students are able to say, take a three-bedroom and put five or six people in it and use some you know, blinds or some curtains or what have you so they were able to get more for their bucks. That raises housing prices for everyone, including faculty and adjuncts. These are the natures of how housing puts additional pressures on workers. And we would know right now, um, just uh, Columbia, uh, Brown, NYU, were just uh, Harvard is about to go, all went on strike, the graduate workers, all went on strike. But also when talking about the workforce, we talk mostly about a faculty of the workforce, but we rarely talk about the working class members of the, 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 the low wage members of the Ivy Tower workforce. So we're talking about grounds crew keepers, we're talking about food service staff, we're talking about support support office staff, which are primarily black, brown, and women. And so they face greater rates of on-site harassment, job censure and demotion, and then on top of that, because most schools work on a nine-month cycle, in the summers, they might not receive health care benefits for their families. And then add to, to add insult to injury, even if a school might have the capacity or the power, the, the labor power to organize a, a, a labor union on the part of the low-wage staff, most schools are moving towards subcontracted labor. So the contract that might have been arranged with the labor union won't even apply to most low-wage workers who have been brought there through subcontract. And so these are the realities. And the point being here is that this is not some marginal piece of the city labor market. Colleges and universities, in many cases, are the biggest employers in the city or county. So, for example, USC is the biggest private sector employer in L.A. County. So the wage ceiling that universities set determines the quality of life for workers throughout cities and counties. That's important to understand. So if your university college is fighting for 15, right? The $15 minimum wage, and the university is pushing back, that is dictating labor conditions for all low-wage workers across the city. And it's important to understand that. The analysis and the history that you walk us through in your book
1: is invaluable, you know, both in terms of like reshaping not only the way that we think about the university, which, as I've been saying, is kind of, it has this feel-good aura that kind of occludes in a classic Marxist way also, right? The, the object itself kind of occludes the means yeah. of its production and the process of its production. Right. It's an elusive kind of... Analy- yeah, it's an elusive... Thing. Exactly. There, but, so, but once revealed, you know, where do you think we can go from here? Like, what are some kind of, like... Initial steps that we can take, or maybe if that's even just consciousness raising, like to address these deep-rooted inequalities
2: and the system that keeps reproducing them. Thank you. Uh, So, I mean, first of all, there is just kind of like an awareness. Like we need to start devising kind of social footprints, social footprint maps of how our entities actually work, not just on campus. And, and right now with the racial reckoning that's going on and there's mm-hmm. some, and we can talk about this maybe later about how this has opened the door to questions about campus policing. Sure. Many institutions yeah. have stopped talking, you know, they've stopped at, okay, we need to reckon with our slave past. We need to reckon with our, our relationship to Jim Crow practices. Many schools are fine with that. They're like, okay, we don't want to do it, but we'll go that far. But to come to the present and talk about current conditions, talk about how these histories of racial disparity continue to shape life chances, and wage disparities and policing practices and healthcare opportunities, schools don't want to go there. And that's where I'm trying to take us. And so we had to start with the social footprint mapping about what actually exists. So in the current conversation around the pandemic, lots of schools are arguing that we need to take an austerity approach. We need to shrink down. We need to suppress wages. We need to raise tuition. But in that equation, that understanding of the university is built on the myth of the school simply being an educational apparatus. And I'm trying to fight against that.
1: It that also te- exacerbates the very conditions you've been identifying. Like, that's, that's like right. a rinse and repeat approach to the problem. That's right. But it, it works for the economic
2: model of the university.
1: Uh, sure, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why the political economy thing is so important to recognize. That's, that's what's right. going
2: on, yeah. And my good friend Craig Wilder says after reading my book, he said he came to realize that teaching classes is basically a side hustle for a higher education. That when we talk about austerity, the only things that are on the table is the tuition in exchange for classes. But in the story that I've been trying to tell you in the last few minutes, the last couple of, you know, last 10 to 20 minutes is that that's just a fraction of how the university and the college does business. We have to talk about the real estate department, the foundation office, the development office, the policing office, the technology transfer department. All of these are the ways in which universities do their business. They're the primary ways. So, if we're going to talk about austerity or the needs of a university and the needs of its city's relationship to that university, the entire budget, all the budget, all the line items need to be on the table. And once we begin to do that and understand that colleges and universities become today's factories and our cities their factory towns. And then therefore there's a cost to those that live in the shadows. Not an ancillary or a secondary cost, but the very prosperity that these schools celebrate is built on extracting wealth from the cities in which they sit. Through tax abatement, through wage suppression, through police dehumanization, all these things, are related, and so once we begin to do that, once we have that analysis, then we can begin talking about what people are saying an anti-racist or an abolitionist university. Because a lot of this is a racial history. You can't. Some critics are saying, "Oh, here he, why? Is, this is a great analysis. Why you got to bring race into it?" But if you read my first chapter, the point that I'm making is that a racial logic shapes the very economic orientation and capacity for the university and the city to do its business. It's a logic around racial difference that allows them to see these spaces as empty, to see these spaces as, as, as benefiting from your presence. The racial component is the engine for the economic uh, development piece. If you just bear with me for a minute, if we do that work, then we can begin to talk about things like a payment in lieu of taxes. Um, In Boston right now, there is a voluntary system whereby schools, have to or be, are being asked because none are required, and this is based on state by state. Um, they are they're being asked to volunteer if you make if you make more than 50, if you have more than fifteen million dollars of property on your rolls, could you please uh, donate twenty five percent of what you would have to pay if your land was properly assessed? None of the schools do that, but during the pandemic, now we have at the state house to turn that voluntary policy into a mandatory policy that would apply to all of Massachusetts. Okay, that's one thing. Another thing is, for example, we have uh, US, when USC built its village, there were community benefits uh, agreements that included things like a firehouse, but it could include things like zip code specific job training or job opportunities. Um, it could include the creation of community schools. Um, right now, the Obama library on the south side of chicago and it's hard to go against obama on the south side right but there is a courageous group of faculty and students and residents that have created the community benefits coalition saying that your presence in our neighborhood is actually raising property values and attracting speculators whereby we might not be able to stay in our neighborhoods so they're arguing for things like 30 percent of all developments in the neighborhood must be affordable they're arguing for other things like we need to put together a property tax fund so whereby our elders in the neighborhood, as their property taxes go up, because they own their homes, there must be a fund that allows them to underwrite the um, the rise in their in their property taxes. So that's those are a couple of other things. Other things that we could talk about, a neighborhood-based urban planning advisory board or, or, or governance board. So any higher education development that comes into our neighborhoods, we must have oversight in our communities over how it can benefit and what it does, what can be its dimensions, how can it work, because as you saw in my NYU story, there were levers in place, but the community boards were only advisory. They all said, we don't want Columbia to build a Manhattanville campus in West Hartford, West Harlem, without it being mixed. We, it's okay to be there, but we want it to be integrated within our neighborhoods. And Columbia said, no, we want it all to be a campus. And then downtown NYU said, well, wait, we've been battling with NYU since Jane Jacobs and, and, and Robert Moses. And so we don't want you to expand in the ways you want to expand, but NYU just bypassed Community Board Number Two and said we do we we'll go straight to the to the City Hall to the City Council and we'll do what we want. And so we have these levers in place, but they're not truly democratic if they don't have enforcement power. If they remain advisory. They don't have enforcement power. But the major takeaway that I'm trying to get from this whole story is not just these kind of reform policies, but how can these policies of reform become gateways to repurposing the very resources and capacities of higher education of campuses in ways that are people centered and people powered. So just to give you a wonderful example, a year and a half ago, I was talking to a woman in Buffalo about how she lived in the historic Fruit Belt neighborhood near what was becoming uh, a medical campus. And so she saw University of Buffalo Medical School encroaching on the Fruit Belt neighborhood where she lived, and she was a nurse. And she saw it encroaching and properties going up beyond the means of the elders in the neighborhood. So she went to Dudley Street um, Development in in Boston, she went to Barcelona to to talk to land rights activists, and she concluded that maybe a community land trust might be the best solution. So she began to organize a community land trust that would allow the community to set the values of land in their neighborhoods so that as the the campus encroached and moved, speculators can drop in and begin to inflate property values. Just yesterday, that woman has become the prospective mayor of Buffalo, India Walton. And she's a socialist, right? An unrequited socialist. And so the point that I'm making here is that because Campuses have such a pervasive and expansive impact in terms of housing, in terms or land values, in terms of policing, in terms of labor conditions, in terms of healthcare standards, because they're not these ivory towers. In today's knowledge economy, they're setting the terms in all these areas for entire cities. So the struggles that we wage on campuses set the table for rethinking urban democracy more broadly. So the very battles that she was having as a socialist activist with this University of Buffalo in a fruit belt neighborhood set the table for her thinking about ways to reimagine the city of Buffalo more broadly as possibly the next socialist mayor. I see that as, the, that's the model for me. That's the possibility.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. That's a inspiring story. In some ways, I thought the model of where you work, of Trinity, of a, a smaller school in a smaller city where, you know, one really can't, survive without the other as being a really also like a a very informative model. If they could recognize that.
2: Yeah, if they could recognize that. That's right. Big.
0: Oh, big. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I I guess maybe to close, you know, you could talk about where where you work uh, and how if you've seen anything happening in your own college in the last couple of years that points to some of the possibilities you were just talking about.
2: Well, I, just to be clear, I work at Trinity College, which is which is an elite private uh, liberal arts college in New England. It's 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 considered one of the little Ivy. so like Williams, Bowdoin, Tufts schools like that, Amherst College. So these elite Ivy a little little Ivy liberal arts colleges. So you know about two thousand students. At one point, they were considered finishing schools. Um, that 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 the the, the the students that went there already had family members, usually fathers, that owned a financial house on Wall Street, and simply they simply needed the education to confer um, what was already a life that was already set for them. For a long time, and physically, Trinity is up on a hill, literally. And it was separate from Hartford and it was able to separate itself because of its economic value and because it was a feeder school to Wall Street. It was able to isolate itself from all the things that were going on as Hartford went through significant urban crisis and collapse as factories moved to the suburbs or to the global south. And so for a long time, that was the reality. But in the 80s, in the 80s and 90s, they began to realize um, that their value was tied to the reputation of the city of Hartford. And so there was a, you know, a unconventional president by the name of Evan Dobell, who came in and talked about, you know, I'm going to create this place called University Heights with a learning corridor. And he said, I consider this geographic affirmative action because the air, the neighborhoods around Trinity are primarily Latinx and some black. We are going to invest in schools and affordable housing to try to revitalize this neighborhood and connect it to our school, it's all about what I said earlier. You know, it's it's self interested because if we revitalize these neighborhoods, it will benefit the profile of Trinity, and people will be feel safe to come back to the city. But Evan Dovell was primarily a politician. He worked in the Carter presidency, and he was big on talk and not so great on follow through. And so there were many who were already hesitant. They were like, "Well, wait a minute. We're an elite liberal arts college. That's what you're talking about is social work." That's not what liberal arts college, that's not what a liberal arts education is. It's about turning inward. It's about reflection. It's about refuge that the that camp, you know, in, in Latin campus means field. It's it's this bucolic space. Uh, and if you know anything about you know, the University of Chicago with its, you know, walled medieval gargoyle design of its campus, that campus was was modeled after Trinity College, you know, so that's the point here. And so for him to step out and do this was pretty radical. Um, but when he was more talk than follow through, other forces of, amongst the alum and amongst others quickly rushed back to the older idea of the campus as a liberal arts refuge. And so since then, we have gone back and forth towards, you know, between calculated outreach and knee jerk enclosure. And so even in today's, you know, formulation, we we have um, a black woman president right now, a neuroscientist, and who is slowly trying to come back out doing great things in terms of our reckoning with our slave history, trying to deal with our issues around like all schools, issues around sexual violence that happens particularly on elite you know primarily white schools, to be honest, and, and the ways in which people have utilized the poor brown surroundings as a way to not identify and analyze the kind of violence and criminality that goes on on a primarily white on white campus. So she's trying to break through that. But at the same time, you know, their, their, their old habits die hard. We built a kind of a downtown outpost campus. And the presumption, talk about the public good paradox, the presumption is that simply by us being downtown, it's considered to be urban engagement or community engagement. But the downtown campus is not in a neighborhood. It's in the central business district. And its primary function is to coordinate relationships with Capitol Hill, because we're in a capital city, and with the financial district. So our, so our students can have these internship relationships with these entities. it also We also realized that schools as far away as Brown University had captured the professional certificate market, which is a, a lucrative business, and I'll be real brief. So, you know, once you get, once you get a degree, once you're working in a job, you need credentialization to get promotions. And so schools are selling certificate programs to help professionals uh, level up in their jobs for promotions. So we weren't in that game. So that's another way to make money. So being downtown in the financial business district becomes a way to get into that market. So, again, the point being is that while the lofty idea is urban engagement or community engagement, the hard scrabble reality is that this has become another way to capture market. And so we're still struggling. We're still fighting. So, in one way, we're doing some good things. And then in other ways, we're falling back on old habits. And so, you know, I'm honest with this. She knows I feel this way. We have conversations, they're good. I hope we can move in a different direction. That's where we are. And, and, I, and I'm open and honest to say that. Some people say, how can you say this? How can you bite the hand that feeds you? Um, how can you be critical of an entity that creates a livelihood for you? And my response to that is that, wait a minute, if you worked in a factory or in a job site and you saw something unjust or something not right, wouldn't you try to make change? Well, this is my site of, of vocation. This is my place and I see something wrong and I want to make change. And more, and even from a, from a higher mission standpoint, higher education uh, uh, boasts itself that part of its calling card is solving the world's social ills and problems. So if, if that is our calling card, wouldn't it be logical to actually begin to solve the problems that we have a hand in in our own backyard? So I take the ethos of, of what higher education claims and I, f- I follow it to its logical extent. Is it dangerous? Hell yes. Are, could there potentially be opportunities that I miss out because of me, what I consider to be calling truth to power? Most definitely. But the benefits, the positives, the connections that I've been able to make with campuses and communities all over the country and thinking about a more democratic higher education and a more democratic city, I believe history will absolve me in the end.
0: Oh, Devarian, thank you so much for being here. That was
2: great to talk with you. Thank you so much.
0: We've been speaking with Devarian L. Baldwin. His new book is In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene teasley Bladen.